Read over your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are great and marvelous in every way. And that we do have difficulty comprehending your goodness and your greatness and your majesty. We know, Lord, in our minds, we know in our hearts that you are these things. But to be able to fully appreciate it, be able to wrap our mind around these simple attributes about yourself, Father, we require all of our energy and all of our strength. And yet we are unable, Father, to be able to really digest the magnificence of who you are. And so, Lord, often as a result of that, we, we end up having a, a small view of you. We don't want, Father, to have that. We, we want, Father, to be more than just enamored with your greatness. Father, we want to know. We want to know you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us with this. We do ask, as always, that as we acknowledge that you've given us your word to instruct us and to guide us and to give us wisdom, we ask, Lord, that it would accomplish these things in our lives. The Lord, that we would be strengthened by your word, encouraged by your word. But also, Lord, that we would have the great desire to, to live out your word, to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to remember, Lord, that living this way, living in a way that we were designed to live, will bring to us great joy and deep satisfaction in life. And so, Father, as always, we ask that you bless your word to our lives. And we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, as Paul has wrapped up giving his uh, very detailed definition, beefy definition of love, he says in verse 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So last week as we began to explore this, uh, we're seeking to answer the question, why is, how is love the greatest of these things? What is the quality of this love? Again, to understand the quality of agape love, which is what we're talking about, we do need to better understand the love of the cross, the love of Christ, how he exemplified love for us on the cross. So as I mentioned last week, and I want to remind you of this, that there is this idea of love. It is found in Buddhism. It's a kind of, I think, has permeated society. Where, and we're not, we don't, it's not that people are thinking of Buddha, but there's this image of Buddha sitting under the bow tree, um, and he is becoming enlightened, and he has this strange smile, and he is just the perfect uh, uh, image of tranquility. In fact, you know, I know there are many different statues of Buddha, not that you study that, but um, if you ever come across pictures uh, of, these, of these images, uh, there are certain ones where it looks like... Um, he has these curls in his hair, and the whole head is covered with that. Well, it's not curls. That's supposed to represent snails. Uh, and the idea was, is during this time when he became enlightened, uh, as he was sitting under the tree and meditating and all those things, uh, that he was in such perfect peace and stillness that he did not notice uh, the snails uh, climbing up his body and then embedding themselves in his hair. I know that sounds kind of gross, but... There are those who see that as being just an incredible thing uh, to have all these things sitting in your hair. And so that was the moment of enlightenment. And so the idea then is that if a person is enlightened in that way, the individual who is, I guess you might even say, super spiritual, 
that because they possess that, that just by virtue of having that, that people will come to them. That they'll just draw people to themselves. And that's not the image of spirituality that we have in the Bible. The idea of you and I being like Christ throughout the New Testament is one that's where we are always active. We are the ones that are witnessing. Christ was active. He was active in prayer. He was active in seeking the lost sheep. And we mentioned last week that even when you look at the parable of the woman who is looking for her lost coin and the diligence with which she uh, set about her task, that's the idea of what it is for the Christian who is tranquil and has peace with God and has found happiness. So many believe then that when it comes to religion or when it comes to spirituality, and you will hear this on talk shows and this is portrayed in movies that the... Uh, I guess the goal of true religion is this quest for inner peace. You want to be at peace with yourself. Or people say, I want to be at, at peace or at one with the universe. And there's always this idea of seeking inner peace. And part of that may be fed by the fact that there's so much turmoil in our lives. Turmoil in the lives of people in general. But again, in Christianity, that is not the quest. That is not uh, what it brings about. Again, as I mentioned, the idea is that we, that we witness. We are witnessing uh, a giving witness to what Christ has done, what Christ has done for us in his death, suffering, and resurrection, the hope that we have. But again, it's more than just understanding these things intellectually. In the 16th century, there was a lot of debate going on uh, during, about the issues of works and grace in the life of the Christian. How, how do they, when you lay them side by side, what is the relationship between the two? Because what the church had been teaching for a long time was that God does grant us grace, that's true, but God's grace then cooperates with our works, with our effort, and then that brings about salvation and all these other types of things. So the relation what came out was that no, that's, that's not the relationship between works and grace. What, what is being presented in the Bible is that our salvation is all of grace. There's, there's nothing that we can do to become savable or to become more savable or to kind of get on God's good list so we're next. Our, our, there's nothing we can do. Our, everything we do is in a sense is really done in rebellion. So that God, because He is good, saves us. But then as a result of that, God's, God's saving us. There's this transformation that takes place in our lives. And we then begin to do good, really, in response to God's grace, as well as being empowered by God's grace. But all that is coming after salvation. So during that time, what was taking place was, as these debates were happening, and you know, during the time when Martin Luther was alive, uh, there were those who were uh, not really pursuing righteousness or holiness in their life. In fact, the, the lack of holiness in the lives of priests was one of those things that kind of got Martin Luther to begin to, again, reevaluate what is the Christian faith? What was the church teaching? What's going on here? You know, why am I seeing this? Why is, why is there all this immorality that's taking place? And so this immorality that was taking place on many different levels within the church really bothered him. And so as he went back to the Word of God, he then discovered uh, not only the way of salvation and began to understand the justice of God and the grace of God, and the holiness of God, he also understood that along with salvation, there is this desire that God has that we live in holiness. So there are those who were 
kind of gravitating towards this theology that he was teaching, but they weren't pursuing holiness, and it bothered Martin Luther a great deal. And so he began to emphasize that as well in his teachings, so that individuals would understand that they are to be sanctified. We are made more and more holy, really by the works of love, the work of love of Christ in our heart and the works of love that we do for others. So again, it's important to affirm that the gospel does include sanctification. That's why when you go through this definition of love that Paul gives here, we don't just look at this and say, oh, how nice that is, and then move on. We never just emphasize, well, this is how God loves us, and then leaves it at that. But the idea is, is that this is how God loves us, and he is giving us this detailed description, because this is God's desire as to how we are to love others. And we are to emulate him in this way. And so he's giving us the details so we can have the understanding of how we are to live. Because this is, this is to be the essence of who we are. That because I am a Christian, God has poured his love in my heart. I now have the ability, apart from selfishness, outside of selfishness, to love others selflessly. I no longer have to love others trying to get them to love me in return. Uh, my love for others is no longer based upon others loving me. I'm able, in a sense, to rise above, above the sin nature, my own sin nature, and the sin nature of others, and really live on another plane, which is not some mystical area, but it really is very practical. The, the ability and the desire to give of yourself to others for their benefit. And again, doing this in following the example that Christ has given to us. And so Paul then, I mean, uh, Martin Luther then realized that something had been, had been left out of the message, and that was really the power of Pentecost, the cleansing and the purifying power of the Holy Spirit. And so he wanted to make sure that, that he began to emphasize that as well to his people. So what we need to remember from all of this is this, is yes, God loves us, but we too love others in the power of God's love. Our love, our agape love, corresponds with God's love. As one individual said, our love is an echo of his love, a mirror of his love. We should be striving for that. Not that we want to hear people say those words, but we want to be able to communicate to others. Is the love that we exercise, is a love that is so unique, and a love that is so powerful, that it is, in essence, otherworldly. It is not the normal kind of love that people come in contact with. That there is a selflessness to it, a strength to it, that would draw people to what that love is. And of course that gives to us then that platform to let others know that it is the love of Christ. And so we should want to love others that way. And that's something that I think that, I don't even want to say that we've abandoned it, because I think a lot of times we don't even think about it. You know, we, we're, we're happy that God loves us. And we're happy to love our family this way. And certain individuals maybe this way. But we are really to be loving and kind throughout the world. Remember that when you just look at history in general, and you kind of take a step back, this love for others has always been an ethic that has driven Christianity. In many countries, I don't know if it's all countries, but I know in many countries... It was only after Christians showed up that hospitals were built. Hospitals weren't being built. Because there was no love of man for man. Things happen to you, things happen to you. 
This desire to, to give of yourself and, and, and sacrifice time and effort and even take risk to exposing yourself to other diseases to help others to get better. No one else was doing that. Christians did that. When, when babies were being thrown into the trash heap in, in Rome as people pa- practiced infanticide for different kinds of reasons, there was no one, no one, that was going to the city dumps to look for these children and to take them home and care for them. Until the Christians showed up. And the Christians began to do that. And then throughout the world where children, uh, unwanted children are all over the place and are, are on a routinely basis being used and abused for all kinds of things. It was the Christians who then would come and raise money and build orphanages and then staff them and raise money to feed these children and to parent them and to love them. It was Christians who did that. Even when it came to the first adoption agencies, it was Christians who did that. Why were they doing all of those things? They weren't doing it because, well, we want our society to be a better society. And that was, I guess that was somewhere in there. It was just, no, there's a need. All of these individuals, all human beings are made in the image of God. God has poured his love in my heart. I have a, a natural love now, we would say natural, a natural love that's born by the Spirit of God for others. And they need our help. They need our help because sin is wrecking the world. And so we want to do this to help them. Even when it came to, to prison reform, that was led by Christians. There's Christians who were doing that kind of thing. To make prisons to be a place where an individual wasn't necessarily going just to die. That, that there was this idea that people could be reformed. It was Christians who, who did that. I will tell you that one of my favorite illustrations, because I think it's just kind of funny, is back in the 1800s, and I, I, I'm not sure if it was in the Pennsylvania State Penitentiary or, or uh, a similar one, but anyway, there's, there was a, a chapel service, which was mandatory. So all the inmates had to come. And so you have the pulpit, and you have all the inmates sitting there, and then next to the pastor is a cannon. <laughs> and there's cannonballs and the whole deal. Like, I, I don't know what they were do. If they don't listen to the sermon, do you shoot the cannon? I mean, I, it's just kind of, to me, it was just kind of, it struck me kind of funny. Uh, to, to see it that way. Uh, but um, the bottom line was, is, is they were all in attendance, and I'd never heard of there being a disruption in a prison church service uh, during that time. But anyway, the idea was, it was Christians who were doing this, and they were driven by this love. And so what we need to do as Christians in the world in which we live, and which again, as we've mentioned many times before, especially in our country, it is so divided, what our country doesn't need is more individuals who can articulate their position better. It's okay if you can articulate your political position better than you could last year. That's a good thing. But that's not what the world needs. What they need is a demonstration of the love of God. They need to see God. And they're going to see God in us. That is the way that God has designed it in His Word. That we would be his hands and his feet. Once we separate love from God, human love simply becomes a mutual kind of love. Now, mutual love is a good thing. It's certainly better than no love at all. But it's never redeeming love. And that's the kind of love that God wants us to exercise towards others. It's a redeeming love. I love others because I have been redeemed by the love of God. And of course, that always points back to what? To the cross. It is, a, it is necessary for those who are within Christianity who we would say are of the more liberal persuasion, 
who are always trying to get away from the cross, the love that, that they may genuinely feel for others is always going to be empty. It will, it will never be able to accomplish enough. Never. Because mutual love or a love separate from the cross will be able to feed the hungry. And it will be able to house those who need homes. But it never is that which transforms that individual. It is never that that redeems them from the real problem. Because the homelessness and the hunger and all, the, all those things are symptoms. Symptoms of a lot of different things. And the only thing that changes that then is the very practical, strong love of the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, we are redeemed only by God's love for us, not by our love for God or by our love for our neighbor. Our love for both God and our neighbor is a sign of God's love for us. Faith is the root. As one has said, love is the fruit. Faith is the foundation. Love is the flower that blooms. The evidence of whether our faith is false or genuine. So we can refine maybe some of the phrases that we're, uh, that we're used to. The idea that the doing of good works kind of reveals that the individual has true faith in Christ. And there's, there's truth to that. But maybe what we should be more focused on is that the, the application and the manifestation of love for others is evidence that we've been transformed. Because a lot of people can do good things. You can do good things in the flesh. Love is hard. All right, love can always lead immediately to bitterness and cynicism. Because if it's, it's a, if it's that mutual kind of love, the idea is I do loving things for you, and if you don't appreciate it, and you don't love me back, you are really no good. And so I'm going to go on to others. But the love of Christ doesn't do that. It's over and over and over again. Love works towards faith, because all who love will seek to share the gospel of redemption and reconciliation with those they meet. The, the believer cannot help himself. One has said, hope is the trust in God, which turns away from itself and the world. It is important for us to note that when it comes to hope, that there is a difference between natural hope and spiritual hope, because spiritual hope is always centered in God. There's been some talk about hope off and on over the past 20 years in secular circles. They don't mean hope that's found in God, but they've recognized that the way that individuals are able to overcome, whether it's chronic diseases or, or be able to work their way through tragedies uh, or catastrophes that come their way, that hope is a very important element within human nature, that we need that. That if an individual loses hope, they may soon die, or they'll die much more quickly. Things go downhill pretty fast. So they recognize that. But again, remember that a, this secular kind of hope is unsatisfying. It, it doesn't have strength behind it. There's no real reality behind it. And what we want to make sure we recognize is that there's a spiritual hope. So it's not a hope that is anthropocentric, which is man-centered, but it is centered on God. Spiritual hope has a social dimension that is true. So it's not just personal, it's not just individual. We hope not just for ourselves, but for the coming of the kingdom and the triumph of the kingdom in the world, because it's what's best for everyone. If we look more closely at the love of the cross specifically, I mentioned this word in the quote that I read last week, that uh, some individuals talk about the paradoxes of the, of the love of the cross. And what they would say when they look at the cross theologically and looking at Jesus, they say this, that it is both submission and conquest, it is both self-emptying and self-fulfilling, and this kind of love also contains both sorrow and joy. 
We know that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He went to the cross in great sorrow, almost to the point of despair. Yet the angels in heaven, I believe, were, were in one sense you could say singing, though I don't think they actually sing, because they saw in the cross the defeat of Satan himself. They were able to witness the glory of the cross. So love is then, it's upward, it is downward, it goes up to God, but it also goes down to those that are in need. This kind of love is both motivated and unmotivated. Remember this, that there is nothing that motivates God to love us. When I say that, what that means is there's nothing in us that motivates God to love us. God does not say, oh look how cute he is, and then loves us. That's not what motivates him. He's not motivated by, he's not motivated by our even response to him. All right, I've seen some people do this. You come up to a cute little baby, and you want to, you know, how we all suddenly become different. We start talking in weird voices and make noises and do stuff with our finger to the kid. And so what happens if the kid starts screaming in your face? You back away. I've even seen a few people do this, like, what's wrong with your kid? <laughs> a lot of things we could say in answer to that. But anyway, the idea is, is that even sometimes with that, we're looking for a good response. We don't get it, that's rejection. And uh, we'll just go find another kid to uh, maybe make smile. But what we need to realize, and we've talked about this theologically, is that there's no worth in ourselves that wins God's sympathy or favor. That's not saying that we have no value. We have value because we're created in the image of God. What we are saying is, there is no value in us, no worth in us that is so great that God says, oh, I've got to have that. He deserves my... That's not what's there. That's not what's there. You don't ever hear anyone... You don't hear uh, any man say when, when his wife gives birth to a baby and they ask, do you want to hold the baby? The doctor doesn't say to... The, I mean, the, the man or the father doesn't say to the nurse or the doctor, well, I'll hold the baby, but... I mean, is, is, is he going to be, like, smart and, and, and driven and, and rich? Because if he's not going to be successful, I don't want anything to do with him. Uh, no, that's not what's said. No, we just reach out and we want to hold them and we want to care for them uh, because they are our own. And that is how God loves us. We need to recognize that love, in a sense, has its own motivation. God's motivation is to uproot sin and to make us holy. Again, even when we make that phrase, to make us holy, don't allow that to make you somehow think that there is this ogre-type God who just wants to, to make you some kind of a good robot. It's not what God's doing. His desire to make us holy is for our happiness. When you look at, again, when you look at your small children and grandchildren, you probably may not have thought it in these words, but you desire, you should desire that your children and your grandchildren grow up holy. Why would you want that? Well, what's the alternative? You want them to grow up to be a serial killer? You want them to grow up to be on the FBI's 10 most wanted list? Do you want them to grow up to be some kind of a maybe well-adjusted sociopath? No, what we want for them is happiness. And if you think about it, happiness always comes to those who what? Treat others better than themselves, love others, live more. All those things that we think of as being good, that's where happiness lies. There's a kind of happiness in those that are evil, but it's short-lived. And it usually has that stain that's on it. 
God loves us while we are still in our sins. He loves us so much that He won't leave us in our sins. He lifts us up to a new foundation. He creates in us a clean heart. He cleanses us by His Spirit. So again, there is nothing that motivates God to love us. And that is how we are to love others. Now we are motivated by our love for God. We are motivated by His love for us. However, there should be nothing in the other that motivates us to love them. There should just, it should never be that way, ever. We're going to exercise the love that God has poured into our hearts. We need to make sure that we love, not as the world loves, but as God loves. So then it is of no importance as to what a person does or doesn't do. It's of no importance as to their status. It is of no importance as to their ethnicity. None. And we do need to make sure that even though we may say the words, Oh, I, I love everyone. It is, I don't care what, what color their skin is. I don't care what they do for work. It's okay to say all that. You just need to make sure that you live that out. Because sometimes we can say the words, but we don't live that out. We stay away from others that aren't like us. Because they might make us uncomfortable, or it's an uncomfortable situation. So we need to make sure that we, are, we have that self-awareness about ourselves. A self-awareness about where we are, and who is with us, and who's around us, and how we are acting as believers. And even if necessary, go out of our way to make sure that we are approaching and truly treating everyone else as we ought to. And that we're not just saying the words Again, remember that the love of the cross is exemplified in Jesus Christ. It is seen in his sacrificial life and death. Remember that he was both the victor, but he was also the victim. He was both priest and he was also the sacrifice. He is both Lord and servant. And he is both the lion and the lamb. There's also great joy in agape love. Joy is the practice of the love of Christ, of the love of the cross. There is joy in God's love for us. There is joy in our love for God. There is joy in service to our neighbor as well. But we need to make sure that we should not and we do not serve others in order to find joy and happiness. As those who possess joy and happiness, we serve others. If we do for others because it makes us happy or makes us feel good about ourselves, and it's okay if it does, but if we do that, if that's our motivation, then we're back to a man-centered way of thinking. And that's detrimental to your life and detrimental to your faith. I'm sure this is true of us, at least I hope it is. You didn't have children to obtain happiness. Hopefully you weren't thinking, well... I mean, my wife and I have been married for a while, and eh, the happiness is kind of fading. We need to get some kids. That'll make us happy. That, that's usually not the way that it goes. Normally, there's already happiness there, and the desire for, if they're thinking, and the desire is to have kids. You, you, may, you, you know your happiness, I hope, will increase as a result of that. But it's not that we are seeking to obtain happiness by having children. If you do that, you're going to be disappointed. We don't get married to be happy. If, if you are engaged to be married, and you're thinking that marrying that individual is going to make you happy, you need to cancel the wedding. Because it's not going to work. Oh, you may be happy for a little while, but it grows old quick. And if, and if that individual you think is marrying you so they can find happiness, that's not the person that you should be marrying. 
And so we don't marry for that. Now, that doesn't mean happiness has got nothing to do with that. It does. But the idea is, is that if we go, if we marry to find happiness or to obtain it, once again, it's a man-centered kind of way of thinking. As we know, we should already be happy. When two happy people come together, they will find even greater happiness in their marriage. If you marry to find, if you marry to find happiness or to be happy, if you have children to find happiness or to be happy, they will always disappoint. Your love for them will be frail and fragile and unsatisfying, as well as whatever love you think they have for you. You will not find the happiness you're looking for. Our greatest source of happiness and contentment is found in God's love for us. He then pours His love into us and tells us to love others as we have been loved. And when we do that, we will live in happiness and we will have joy. In the book of 1 John, the word love appears 36 times between, the cha- between chapters 2 and 5. The references are there in your bulletins because I'm not going to give you time to look them up. But I'm going to read them. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, when I think of the verse in, in, uh, in 1 John 4, where he says, no one has ever seen God, and then he immediately says, if we love one another, God abides in us. The implication there is, is no one has seen God. If God, if you love each other, people will see God in you. You know, you've seen those corny Christmas movies, where some guy is... I guess he has a white, white hair, a white beard, and he's very kind and gracious. And at some point in the movie, some little kid says, are you Santa? You know, because of how he, you know, how he portrays himself. Well, not that we're looking for people to ask him for God, but I think there's that same kind of idea there. No one has seen God. They get a glimpse of God by our loving each other and loving them, which is a, an incredible thing to think about. Tremendous thought. Again, as to others, we should serve them simply out of love, because we care. We serve because the Holy Spirit is planted within us, a caring concern for others. Joy and happiness comes as the fruit. It's the byproduct of God's love for us and the indwelling of the Spirit. They are evidence of something deeper within us, that is the gift of love. This gift really is the gift of Jesus Christ Himself, who lives within us by His Spirit. That's why we're always talking about nurturing this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. That's why He is our focus when we worship. He is the one that we are thinking about. He's the one that we are depending upon. Agape love is always a love that proceeds outward, whether the other person responds or not. Which probably uh, is one of our greatest areas of weakness, is 
we may be patient and we'll go and we'll love others maybe for a long period of time but if there continues to be no response we eventually stop not that we hate them but we just stop and we move on maybe to others here what we need to remember is that if we're going to love in the way that God loves we love others because we are loving them out of the love that God has poured in our hearts that is a wellspring that doesn't dry up it is not that you only have so much love to give you know you know when we have again when people have children this is usually a discussion that does not take place thank goodness you imagine that the woman finds out she's pregnant she tells her husband I, I'm pregnant and he says whoa we've got two kids that's all the love I got I mean, you can have the baby. We've got to give it away. We, we don't have any. We don't. Have, we don't have any love left. No, there, no one thinks that way. There's always more love. It continues to flow out of us. So if we're depending upon ourselves to love others, it will dry up. But as we nurture this relationship we have with God, and we we immerse ourselves in the joy of this love that God has for us, and this unending source that God has given to us then we don't ever get tired of loving even those who don't respond because nothing to get tired of because it's, it's a part of it it's, it's who we are it's just who we are that I think is the key to understanding agape love but at the same time even though it proceeds towards others even if they do not respond we do seek to create a relationship with the other person we do want that. There are those in some older books, they like to quote Bernard of Clairvaux, where he asserted that the highest kind of love is a love of self for the sake of God. Just so you know, and you've heard me say this before, that loving ourselves for the sake of God is not a New Testament teaching. True love, Christian love, drives you out of yourself into the needs and the aspirations of your neighbor. And we need to remember that as we love others picture that God continues to pour his love in your heart we do need to be loved by others we are loved by God without fail there are those who will love us as believers and our need for love and acceptance is met by the family of God people in the family of God at times are going to let us down but we do not need to do what the world often does and go out and seek others to love us. We don't need to draw attention to ourselves to be loved. We don't need to let others know that we're needy. We don't need to whine in that way. And there's a lot of ways to whine. We just need to stop that and trust that Christ will meet our needs. God is the one who created us. He knows what we need. And He knows when we need it. My prayer is that God would give us clear insight to understand the nature of the wondrous love of Calvary. That we will often reflect on the love of Christ that drove him to the cross. Where he refused to take a detour to the right or to the left. He was going to do what needed to be done because of his great love for us. Period. And he accomplished it for us. And that is the picture of that we are to emulate in our lives. That is what we are to, to hold in our mind as we seek to love others. When we become tired or we begin to wonder what we're doing, or we, or we grow tired of other people, we need to remind ourselves of, of the selfless, sacrificial act of Christ 
who was able to overcome our sin and overcome our weaknesses. And that is the love He's poured in us. And we simply ask God to help us to continue to love others in His strength, in His power, with His love. And He will supply that for us. We pray that His Spirit will move us to love both Him and our neighbor, to love each other with the supernatural love of the cross. Thus, when it comes to faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these truly is love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again as always, we can just never thank you enough for the unbelievable love that you have for us. A love that has been proven, a love that will never fail, a love that will never fade. Father, we don't always think about it in these ways, but our happiness and joy with all of life we possess that because we really do know that we are fully loved and accepted by you. For some of us, we've been in that position for so long, to us it seems to be the normal state. And though, so in that sense, we kind of become unaware of it. It's not, Lord, that we would ever take it lightly, though sometimes we do because of our weakness, and because we're flawed. We pray, Lord, that when necessary, which usually comes as we read your word, and as we spend time with you in prayer, we are reminded of the greatness of your love and the strength of your love. I pray, Lord, that again our hearts will be filled with that and that we will give that to others. I do know, Lord, that it is possible that there are some here today that have never really experienced that kind of love. A love where there is never a moment's fear that there will be a betrayal in the end. A love that will always be there and will always be strong. Will always be caring. And I pray, Lord, that for those individuals who have never experienced that, that if necessary, Lord, I pray that you would put a spotlight on the emptiness of their heart so they would have a, even a deeper sense of what's missing in their life. That they will recognize, Lord, that the reason why they experience that is because their sin has separated themselves from you. That you are the source of all of these things. And we need to get rid of that barrier. And, and we can't. We need you to do that for us. I pray, Lord, they would recognize the great need they have. And they will come to you on your terms. They will come to you in faith. They will come to you repenting of their sin and seeking your forgiveness and your grace. And we know, Lord, that you've said in your word that a broken and contrite spirit you will never turn away. And as the word also says, as these individuals are regenerated by your spirit, you will pour out your love in their heart and they will then know the love that you have for them. Until that time comes in their life, help us, Father, who are believers to be able to manifest and display to them the love of Christ. May we never grow weary, Father, in loving others. And again, we thank you, Lord, for those who have loved us and love us even now. May we, Father, leave here today stronger as Christians, with a firm handle on what love is, that we may love others with boldness and strength, and that we may have endurance. And that you, Father, would receive all the glory and the honor. 
Thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.